Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. This feels very meta. Yeah? Yeah, studio inside of a studio. It's a pod within a studio. Oh, a pod, pardon me. We, we are recording our, our very first episode inside your official recording studio yeah. within your studio. Pardon me, recording pod within your, <laughs> your studio. Yeah, this is the first time we've recorded anything in here. We uh, decided we had the space, so we would make a dedicated room just for recording audio in, uh, both for this sort of thing, podcasts, but also for doing voiceover work for videos. And uh, it's a really great place to take phone calls. <laughs> you don't have all the background noise from the shop bugging you and, and uh, interfering with your phone call. So, yes, it's very nice to uh, to be in here and have a nice quiet room to be able to work in. And it's, it's spacious, too. There's still ample room for us to physically distance within this pod. Yeah, that's the scary thing. We could have four people in here comfortably distanced from each other and still be able to record and, and not be sitting on top of one another. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's uh, it's pretty good. And I'm hoping uh, we'll see what the uh, the audio sounds like when I, when I edit it this weekend. But it uh, it should be a little bit nicer to edit as well because there isn't quite as much background noise and we don't have to worry about uh, ambulances blasting by outside or air conditioners coming on or anything like that. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to editing this audio. It should be pretty good. I'm sure we make your job much easier. I hope so. So last episode, we chatted a bit about ordering a very obscure crystal. And uh, someone pointed out to me afterwards that I didn't mention at all uh, dimensions of, of the crystal, or if I did, I, I wasn't explicit enough. And yes, I did also send the dimensions of the crystal when I was on the hunt for it. So that's, that's an important piece of, of information to send along as well. And uh, my apologies for overlooking that or, or missing that. And uh, also for my, my odd turn of phrase there with uh, up to a thousand crystals. I should have said like a thousand plus. I think I stopped myself from saying thousands because I'm pretty sure I haven't done thousands of crystals in that span of time, but certainly hundreds. Uh, but I was quite tired that that episode I'd <laughs> come in. I'd probably been 20 minutes between coming in from hauling interlocking bricks all day and, and sitting down to record that. So I was a little sunbeat. So uh, my apologies, dear listener, for uh, that, that fumble there last episode. I'm going to say you've gone from being a, a fine, detailed, meticulous watchmaker to uh, laying uh, patio stones. That's a, a bit of a shift for you. I can still be meticulous in, in laying uh-huh. down some, some interlock. So, you, so your interlock is accurate to the micron? Is that <laughs> <laughs> plus or minus Hardly. three microns? No, no I'm not, not going that, that, <laughs> that in depth. No. But, uh, yeah, certainly a, a change of, of a scale and, and pace. And, uh, yeah, it certainly is not as fine a, a work. Looking uh, forward to getting back to the bench. Absolutely. Yeah. Particularly with the, the temperatures we've had as of late. We also spent quite a bit of time talking about our camera setups for Time for a Pint last episode. And yeah. someone also pointed out to me that uh, Skype has a, a feature built into it now. or I guess it's been since 2019, early 2019. Or you can automatically blur out your, your background. Get yourself some bouquet on the cheap. No extra equipment required. You just to check a little box there there in Skype. And uh, it turns out Google Meet is, is also going to be introducing this for their enterprise and education editions, where you can just uh, press a little button and, and blur out your background for you. Uh, and maybe there have been too many people sort of wandering into the backgrounds of, of Skype videos and whatnot, or Google Hangout videos, and, and uh, they wanted to be able to blur that out a little bit because... I know there have been various people who've been trolling their spouses and, and kids at uh, when they're, they've been on their video calls. So there's there was one Twitter thread I saw. There was a guy who kept going into his kids, you know, his kids' video calls at school all the time and 
and uh, he's dressed up in ridiculous costumes every time he was going through and, and trying to make sure that his kid didn't actually know he was there. But, of course, everybody watching the, the video saw that he was there. So <laughs> maybe they're trying to combat some of that. Mm. I'm sure all the, the parents operating as personal assistants for their young children in, in school <laughs> will also appreciate being blurred out of the background of, of all their classroom calls. It, it is funny how uh, how many kids under the age of 10 now have, you know, have meeting schedules and, and have a, you know, saying, oh, I, I'm, I'm nearly late for my next conference call, right? And, mm-hmm. So it, it is kind of amusing, the, the world that we're in now. And, the... and in time for a pint news as well, we also happened to, to talk about in our, our last episode the fact that we couldn't believe that uh, Chris and, and Matt had been carrying on for as long as they had with, with time for a pint without taking a break, uh-huh. without stopping for a beat. And uh, by the time this episode goes live, they will have recorded their last virtual get-together for, for a time. At least. Yeah, I think you may have jinxed them. Maybe you... Uh... Or maybe we convinced them to take a break. Who knows? Yeah, well, they, they should. They, they certainly deserve it after... And this is going to be, I think, 13 or 14, something like that. It's like three straight months of Yeah, it's... it's uh, I have to say, it's impressive what they've done. I mean, we, you and I have been recording this podcast mostly every two weeks for the past couple of years, and, and that's challenging enough. I can't imagine trying to get on a video call every Sunday with two guests. Mm-hmm. That's the big thing, right? I mean, the, the the couple of times that we've had other people on the show, uh, once was with Rich and it was fortunate because we were all sitting in the same room and that was really easy. And uh, and then the other one with Peter and, and trying to get him him dialed in and everything. And it, it adds a lot of complexity and challenge to what for us is normally a pretty simple setup. And uh, I can't imagine, um, you know, adding video and everything on top of that and trying to convince everybody to have a reasonable quality video when they're when they're dialed in. So uh, good on, on Matt and Chris for being able to, to hang in there for as long as they have and, and keep it going. Hopefully they're, this doesn't burn them out completely and that they do come back and try and do something on at least a, you know, a monthly basis or maybe every couple months. Uh, Cause it's, it's definitely been uh, good for me. I've, I've enjoyed seeing everybody uh, being introduced to new people and certainly being introduced to some cool new watches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's certainly a lot more that goes into each of those virtual get togethers than just that hour itself yeah. where, everyone is all together because you've got sort of the, the pre-show that happens for half an hour or so before that, just making sure everyone's gear is working properly. And then on top of that, uh, I, <laughs> I missed this in our case. Uh, my apologies. The, the email and actual meeting happened within a, a block of time where I was nowhere near a device. Uh, but the, there's also the the sort of test show uh, done earlier in the week that, yeah. that Chris and Matt organized. And then, uh, too, Chris is putting together that, that slideshow every week. Everyone's getting the, the photos together and to him. Yeah. And I, I imagine the two of them are probably doing at least a, a little bit, if not fairly in-depth, research into some of the pieces, too, so that they know what they're, they're talking about yeah. when it comes yeah, to it's, actually record. It's an, it's an amazing amount of work. I'm, I mean, I, I certainly don't put in nearly that much work for this podcast every, you know, every time we get ready for it. The editing is a little bit more work. On, in our case, uh, I think that the video editing is probably a little bit easier in that case. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's a bit simpler to, to put that into something that can go up onto YouTube, but even still, it's still a remarkable amount of work getting ready for it and getting prepped for it every week. And, and of course they both have day jobs on top of this, mm-hmm. right? So it's not as if this is what they're doing for a living. Uh, you know, this is purely what they're doing, uh, for fun and, and enjoyment. So yeah, I'm, uh, I'm happy that they've done it and, and glad that it's, uh, that it's happened. Hopefully this kicks off a new era of, uh, of this sort of thing happening on a regular basis, not just with them, but with other people. And not just other people, but other organizations. I mean, yeah, we've, we've entire talked, conferences. Exactly. 
we've talked a bit about uh, the, the end of, of Basel World in a sense, and uh, SIHH or Watches and Wonders now has, has gone all virtual. And then uh, this past week, it's been uh, WWDC, which is Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference. And it's the first time it's been entirely digital. And uh, I, for one, I have to say that I actually really like the, the format that they've, they've landed on for WWDC this year. I find it's uh, much more palatable uh, as a, a developer than being able to, to get exactly what you need. Uh, the format is a lot more engaging, I find. And then you've actually got access to the engineers without having to travel all the way <laughs> to, to California. To yeah. yeah, you don't have to go to San Jose to, mm-hmm. to actually do that, yeah. I, I'm not a developer, and I, but I do follow along with some of it. I, I'm curious and geeky enough that I'm I'm interested in some of what's going on, and interested in following along some of the sessions, particularly with uh, things that, that particularly interest me. And it, it's a great format. It's been so nice to see. One of the big things that I've I noticed is that because they're not blocking out time in a physical conference center for each of them, they are making videos that are the length that they need to be for the particular topic. If it needs to be an 11-minute video, they publish an 11-minute video. They're not forcing it into a 60-minute block regardless of, of what the content is. Or if they need to go over the 60 minutes, I don't know if anybody has, but they can if they absolutely need to go over that that time allotment, which is really nice. So it's uh, it's been a good format. I've I followed along a little bit of it, and I'm sure that if I was a developer, I'd love this because it's you, you wake up in the morning, it's like, oh, hey, there's all the sessions for the day all released at once. I can pick and choose the ones that I want to go to. And um, and as you say, they've had engineers available to actually talk with people individually about the problems they're having and the things they're working on. So I, I think that we are going to see more and more of this. Obviously, they're doing this sort of thing virtually is never going to replace the personal interaction that you have with people. All the conferences that I've been to over the years, no matter how good they were, the the best part about all of them was actually sitting down and chatting with people, you know, as I say about pen shows and things like that, like I, I sell more in a bar at 2 a.m. than I do on the show floor in the middle of the day with thousands of people around because you get to have a long conversation with somebody, you know, you're relaxed, it's, you know, you can you can show things off or you can talk about things that are going on, problems that you're having, you get to become friends with people. You know, I've I've been over to the UK and through some fascinating tours of places that most people will never get to see purely because of the friendships and conversations that I've had with people at conferences in person. So certainly this sort of thing will never replace those in-person meetings and gatherings. But at the same time, what an effective way of of getting that information out into the world and actually, you know, running a conference. So if if for some reason you end up being responsible for some kind of a worldwide conference or a large conference of people, you're trying to figure out how to do it virtually, Take a look and see what Apple did with WWDC. They did an amazing job of it, and uh, and I think it's it's been incredibly effective. Everybody that I've I've spoken to has had nothing but good things to say about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with with all those those thoughts. I hope that uh, from an information delivery perspective, that this is sort of the way things go go forward for Apple, and then I hope other companies follow suit as well. Because in, in terms of an, an information dump, it is just so far superior to to the previous way as you say trying to pad out uh, a talk mm-hmm. uh, instead of doing that you can actually slice up a talk and, and take out those core pieces that are actually necessary and then if you need to go over you, you go over yeah and uh, just, I, I guess uh, i guess one thing I, I don't quite quite agree with what you said is, is i wish i, I could have 
woken up in the morning and had everything there. But I'm in the wrong time zone for that. Oh, that's true. So I had to wait around till 1 p.m. every day for, for that day's videos to, to drop. So I, w- I would, in the future, actually love to see them just drop all of the videos, say, on the Tuesday after their, their keynote and the State of the Union. Right. And just have everything there to access right away. Because everything is pretty much, it's all good as far as I know, it's pre-recorded. Sure. And maybe there's some last-minute editing going on or, or something. But to the best of my knowledge, it's all pre-recorded. I mean, even just looking at the keynote itself, if you take a close look at the the person who's demoing, demoing the Apple Watch, like the, the date on her watch is for several weeks earlier. Yeah. And so it's clear that these were all done well in advance. Yeah, just nothing but great things to say about the actual content and, and production itself. And I also 100% echo the the relational side is something that is absolutely missing here. Uh, but that's something that's hard to deliver in any real capacity, given the, the current circumstances surrounding COVID-19 and the like. I am curious to see just how conferences in general evolve mm-hmm. going forward now that we've had, in a sense, a taste of this and, and seeing what happens once, hopefully, we get COVID-19 under control. Because I 100% agree with you. I, I love and very thankful for the relationships that I've been able to foster mm-hmm. through conferences, or not even just foster, but uh, to sort of sprout and begin. Uh, relationships that I never would have would have had before with with sure. people. So yeah, absolutely. There's there's nothing that's ever going to replace that. But it's also challenging. I, you know, I'm thinking about um, the Santa Fe Symposium. I know they were originally thinking about trying to push that until later this year and try and hold it again later this year. But I don't know that that's going to happen. So, you know, the the U.S. is just getting worse in terms of the number of daily cases that are coming out. So, you know, I'm certainly not interested in traveling down to the U.S. anytime soon. And certainly not interested in uh, in going down for a week and then having to isolate myself for two weeks afterwards mm-hmm. when I return. So, you know, I'm not sure that it's it's something that that's going to happen anytime in 2020 for sure. Uh, hopefully, you know, I, hopefully the the Santa Fe Symposium they decide to to push it until uh, you know next year until um, May next year and basically do it as though the you know 2020 just never happened and they they were doing their uh, their conference in 2021. But I've already had to bow out of a couple of conferences, things that have happened. Uh, there was a summer maker camp that was happening in Cincinnati in August, and I know they're still planning on going ahead with it. Um, but at the same time, there's no way I'm driving down there. Uh, in fact, right now, I can't even drive down there. There's, there's no no ability to drive across the border unless it's for essential travel. So we'll see what happens. We'll see how how long this goes on for. You know, This may become the new normal for the next couple of years. I hope not. But uh, it is certainly a possibility. Mm. And while this kind of delivery is great for training in domains of knowledge work, for more hands-on stuff, it's just not something that, yeah. that is going to fly as well. I was hoping to, to take a, a a course this summer on some training on, on some newer movements down in the States, and, and that's just not going to happen now. Sure. Uh, so for skills like what watchmaking, yeah, you really do need that, that hands-on that. ability. Like You wouldn't be able to, to have the, the same sort of interaction with the the BHI that you've had with their their on-site courses. I mean, I know you've been doing the, the correspondence course. There's a, a vast difference between having that, that hands-on exposure and access and having a teacher be able to look over your shoulder or demonstrate something to you in person that is really challenging or nigh on impossible to replicate digitally. Absolutely. I, I went through, you know, all of the material for, you know, let's say the, the very first course that I took with John Edwards over in at the BHI. I'd been through the material. I had actually ripped apart one of the movements and and sort of reassembled it. And the number of things that I had learned by the end of day one 
was was incredible. You know, even though I knew the movement, I knew how to do the work. There was there was a remarkable amount of information that I was able to learn just because here is somebody who's been doing this for thirty five years and has an incredible depth of knowledge. I can ask him any question that I want. Other people will ask him questions, and you can see what other people are struggling with, what other people are finding easy. They're going to have questions that you've just never even imagined, and all of a sudden you want the answer to. So there there is a huge benefit to being there in person for that. I wonder, um, you know, with that sort of thing, if it's going to be possible to do virtual training. There certainly are options for being able to do virtual online training like that uh, where you are speaking to somebody live. Uh, so one of the things we talked about was our my setup for the Time for a Pint get-together. And that's something that I could easily set up and use for being able to deliver training live online. You know, I could I can stream live to YouTube or Twitch or even Instagram Live if I want to and be able to show in detail what it is that I'm working on. And I can have multiple camera angles of what I'm doing. You know, I can have a microscope set up. I can have, you know, a wide shot of the bench. All of those things are things that I can do. So you know, maybe there is something there that we can that we can figure out so that you can still get the information that you need to about new movements and not have to necessarily travel to somewhere that, um, you know, that you just can't right now. Yeah, the harder thing to transport is, is the tooling. <laughs> yes. So particularly for as you get deeper and deeper into, so say, the, the knowledge space or the, uh, the types of, of movements that you're working on, oftentimes there's very specific equipment designed uh, for these things, or for particular cases, for particular movements, and if you were to outfit yourself with all this necessary equipment, you'd <laughs> probably be looking at like a five-figure sum, yeah. all said and done. Although that said, the Horological Society of New York has been running their watchmaking 101 courses virtually, and that is a little more tenable. That's more hands-on, and that's closer to that first course that I took at the BHI, where it's a time only. They're using a six four nine seven, just like um, like we did. And that that's certainly the kind of thing that you can actually teach in, you know, let's say a week virtually like that. Uh, again, it, it might be challenging if somebody's have if a student's having a tough time with something, you know, they're, you know, what it's like trying to work on some of these movements, um, particularly if you don't know how to handle a capsule. You know, how do you teach somebody to to um, you know to handle a capsule when you're not there or they're struggling with it and you want to be able to just show them you know, this is what's going on, or you can't see how they're handling it properly. You know, those are all things that, that are tough to do because even though you as a teacher can have the, a great setup, not all of your students are going to have that same setup. So that becomes a little more challenging as well. So I'm hoping that, you know, that more of this online content, more of this video content becomes available and people think about it more. You know, Rich and I have been thinking about YouTube a lot more. We've been putting out some videos, not as many as we should be, but we've, we certainly have been getting videos out there. And, you know, obviously video, YouTube and video is not something new that's been, you know, it's been a thing for a long time, but hopefully we'll see more and more of that and people will think about it more. Certainly there's more access to cameras. There's, uh, you know, it's easier to set up in your shop and just hit record and publish. And that's, you know, you don't need to, to do any fancy editing and get that out there. So I'm hoping that that this will encourage more people to, you know, to actually share what they're doing by video. I've certainly seen a bunch of people doing watch repair stuff on YouTube now that I haven't before. Uh, there, you know, there's probably a dozen more YouTube channels in the past year that are doing watch repair and watch servicing and things like that that just weren't around before. And they're getting pretty significant numbers of people following them, right? Like you're getting, in some cases, you know, there's one I've, I saw, I think it was six months old, and they had thirty or 40,000 people following their channel. 
So that's not an insignificant number of people. And I'm sure that not all of those people are looking to service their own watches, but it's encouraging to see that there's some interest in that sort of thing. And that's what will keep people going and and actually keep them doing these videos. Mm -hmm. Another thing we sort of touched on last episode that Apple did come to announce at WWDC is that uh, ARM chips are in fact coming to the Mac. And uh, a nice side effect of this that I, I should have anticipated but didn't is that two of my iOS apps, Twixt and Kello, will be able to run natively on these ARM Macs. That's uh, kind of a, a nice bonus there. That's Apple Silicon to you. Pardon me. I, I, I You know what? I know they want to call it Apple Silicon. <laughs> I know. Uh, everyone <laughs> is going to be calling them ARM Macs. They're ARM Macs. Yeah, it's They're just ARM so processors. much easier to say. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's, uh, who cares? It's not Apple Silicon. It's it's. And they're they are designing them, and and I'm really looking forward to seeing what they do with these things. It's uh, I've been anticipating this shift for a couple of years now, and when you look at the speed of the iPad Pros, like the one that I've got in front of me right now, in fact, the processor that's in this is exactly the processor that they're putting in the development kit, and it's going to run fine, and it's going to be fast, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what they're going to do with it. And from what they were were saying, both at the keynote and elsewhere. They're planning on transitioning all of their computers eventually over mm-hmm. to that, including their crazy, you know, Mac Pro that they've got that you can currently spec out to being a whatever eighty five thousand um, dollar computer. All of them are going to be on on our Macs, and I'm really curious to see what they end up doing with that because it's uh, it should be should be pretty impressive what they're able to uh, to put out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with the the Mac Pro Tower. Almost unlimited core count. Yeah. So. But yes, it's uh, speaking about your, your iOS apps, that was a really nice surprise is that uh, going forward with the ARM-based uh, Macs, you're going to be able to run any iOS app that isn't explicitly set up not to run on Mac OS. So that's really nice. There, there are a lot of apps that are going to look horrible. And I hope that the developers are smart enough to say, nope, you should not have that running on a Mac because it's not... You know, it's not designed for that. It's the interface is miserable for that or whatever. But there are a lot of apps that are perfectly usable and will be perfectly usable. Like I'm sure yours would be fine running on an, on a Mac and shouldn't need any significant work to be able to get them looking good. So I'm I'm really looking forward to that. And there's certainly a couple of apps that uh, that would be nice to see <clears throat> Instagram and uh, you know and and that'll be nice to to be able to get that sort of thing on on the uh, the Mac all of a sudden. Yeah, the user interaction model out of the box will be poor for Twix. Just holding your wrist up to the screen, kind of, <laughs> kind of like you're saying there last episode. Technically, it should be possible to actually pipe an image in from an alternate device as well. So that's mm. something I'm, I'm currently exploring. Uh, so this is all fresh and, and brand new, so sure. I'm still digging into things. But I should be able to, to get that operating in, in some respect. Now, are you relying on the live video feed for uh, for what you're doing, or do you just need a still image? Well, I do, in a sense, need the live input mm-hmm. because I am tying the ex- exact instant that the photo is being taken to an NTP timestamp. Okay. So that's what allows it to, to give the precise readings that it does, mm. is that the instant that the photo is taken, you know, the precise time that that photo was taken. At, okay. And then do the comparisons over time that way with the, the face of the watch. Okay. So ideally, you do need to have something there that you can take it take mm-hmm. a live photo. Yeah. Well, and the nice thing is that, that nearly all Macs have some kind of a... Uh, FaceTime camera on them. Mm-hmm. Most of them are miserable in terms of quality, but they they're at least there. So maybe there's something that you can do there that'll that allow it to work. Yeah, sorry to all those people who dished out <laughs> tens of thousands of dollars for their Mac Pros. It's just 
I think it's still going to be a couple of years before we see an, an ARM Mac Pro, but um, I'm I'm really interested to see what happens. The transition they say is going to take up to two years to do, and I know that they've still got Intel Macs they're planning on releasing. Mm-hmm. So it's not you know it's not just uh, ARM Macs that are coming out in the future. And I'm uh, I'm really curious. I I know I do want to buy a uh, higher end editing workstation at some point. My 16 inch MacBook Pro is is okay for editing video, but certainly not uh, not where I want it to be. And as I do more and more of it, I'll want uh, I'll want something. So I'll need to decide: do I want to get one of the last generation of Intel Macs, or do I want to wait and get one of the new hotness Macs that are coming out next year? So mm. we'll have to see. Yeah, I probably won't. I'm torn as whether I'll dive in right away. I probably will just for testing purposes because the the developer kit um, has to go back, and I'm, I'm torn. I, I, it doesn't seem worth. Uh, worth the output because I have, I have so much else to focus on as sure. well. Just uh, getting getting things ready and, and building out features that I have been working on and have in the pipeline. Um, so I'm just going to take a wait and see approach with uh, the this transition of iOS apps over to the Mac and uh, some some real time correction just to prevent anyone from writing me. Um, I spoke of the Mac Pro in past tense, so recognizing <laughs> fully that uh, iOS apps will not be running natively on any of those. Uh, Mac Pros, and it'll just be the, the newer ones that actually run on Apple Silicon. Yes, yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, you will need a, an ARM Mac to be able to run the iOS apps on them. Yeah, I think you might actually have a tough time getting one of those developer kits because you're not an, a Mac developer, mm-hmm. um, and I think they're being reserved for Mac developers at this point. It's hard to say whether it's a lottery system or how they're they're playing it out, but you can put, essentially put your name on a list for yeah. one of the, the developer kits, which is effectively a, a Mac Mini with your iPad Pro stuffed inside yeah, of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think a little bit more RAM. I think they've got I think they've doubled the RAM that's in it. Mm-hmm. The yes, 16 gig of RAM. 16, yeah, that's yeah. right. One other thing that they did uh, talk about was that they already have Final Cut Pro and <laughs> and Logic running on our Macs. In fact, they showed them running on an ARM Mac. And I'm sitting there thinking, great, you guys have already done all the hard work. Now, where is it for my iPad? And uh, who knows, maybe uh, maybe the iOS 14 transition, I, I know the most of the listeners are probably not particularly concerned, but It'd be really nice to be able to edit this podcast on my iPad Pro when I'm on the road instead of needing to bring my MacBook with me. Although, as we just said, at this point, I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. So it's not really been much of an issue. But uh, eventually, when I do get to travel again, it'd be nice to be able to travel without needing to bring my MacBook with me and be able to do all my editing on the road. Certainly, this this um, iPad Pro is more than powerful enough to be able to handle most of what I'm doing right now. And even if it was a little bit slow outputting, you know, rendering audio or rendering video or whatever, I'm okay with that. I'd be certainly happy with it. And the interface is so much nicer to work with, especially when dealing with audio. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it's nice to be able to, to use the pencil and get hands-on with it. And so hopefully hopefully we see that soon. And who knows, maybe you'll be able to use your pencil and, and your finger on a future Mac. Because based on a lot of the UI changes coming with this latest version of, of Mac OS, it's certainly upped the the size of a lot of the the touch targets so to speak the mm. the tap targets on a, a mac so i i would not be surprised at all if uh, we end up seeing a mac with a, a touch screen sometime in the next few years yeah i'm wondering if we end up seeing something like a, a macbook air convertible or something like that something with a you know with a touch screen on it that you can use like a tablet uh, i mean at this point it's you know some of the macbook airs are smaller than the ipad pros and especially once they start putting in the their their own uh, arm chips in there, the power requirements go down dramatically. So they can cut down some of the space that they're using for batteries right now in that in the MacBook Air. You know, there's no reason why they couldn't 
shove a an iPad screen onto that MacBook and and go with that. So we'll have to see. I I wouldn't, as you say, with the interface changes that they're making, I wouldn't be at all surprised if there's some kind of touch interface available at some point for for macOS. And I I'm of two minds about that. I obviously we'll have to see how it works out and and what it looks like and how it functions. But I'm really not too too concerned about it. I'm still going to use my trackpad and my mouse and when I'm working on a on a Mac and I'm still going to use my fingers and my pencil when I'm on my uh you know when I'm on my iPad so I don't see I don't see it really changing my the way I interact with it dramatically but for some people I'm sure that it'll be great I'm sure they'll love it well for the up and coming generation you know my Mac is just broken yeah my, my daughter <laughs> exactly. just, just this morning gooped <laughs> up my my screen trying to touch something now what I would love is if they introduce pencil support into a MacBook mm-hmm. if they you know if the, my 16 inch MacBook Pro had a had the ability to use the pencil on the screen, that would be amazing because that's one thing that I do think the Mac actually lacks at this point. I know you can buy, you know, tablets and stuff like that for working on a Mac. They're nowhere near as good as the interface on an iPad at this point. And that would be really nice to see is is pencil support in there. On the complete opposite end of the technology spectrum, uh, what, did, what did you think of this uh, find out in, in Moose Jaw <laughs> just recently? Yeah, the uh, we'll put a link in the show notes to the uh, the CTV news story about this. There was a couple that bought a machine shop, an abandoned machine shop, and were planning on emptying the shop and and turning it over for for a profit and flipping the property. And uh, what did they say? It was eighty five thousand pounds. Eighty five thousand pounds. Eighty five thousand pounds of metal that they've removed from the shop so far, and uh, which you know I've I've moved. I've moved about ten in uh, in my shop move here, and that's that's a lot of metal. So uh, they uh, they found a, a huge amount of material that had been obviously collected over years because that machine shop has overhead line drive lathes in there that are still functioning, and as far as I can see from this, would have still been in use hmm. whenever somebody turned off the lights and locked it up for the last time. So those, I mean, that would have been installed in the early 20th century because nobody would have set up a, a shop like that sort of post-war. You know, that, that shop was set up as it was 100 years ago, and it's remarkable that, that some of those machines are still in the condition that they're in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the lays, I believe, is from about 1915. They yeah. dated it, too. Yeah, and like uh, the last time the lights were, were turned out on that shop, uh, I wasn't even born yet. So. <laughs> Well, there you go. Yeah, it's uh, it's remarkable seeing some of these machine shops or some of these shops just in general. I've I've spoken a little bit about the Museum of the Jewelry Quarter in Birmingham, UK, and the the fact that that jewelry manufacturer basically just shut up the shop in the eighties. I think it was eighty three or something like that, and just locked the door one day and walked away. And so you get these time capsule sort of workshops, which is which is impressive. And this is the same sort of thing, although. It hasn't had a team of conservationists go through it and and make everything um, you know sort of safe and prevent it from deteriorating from where it is now. Um, but I know the the owners were looking for people who would be interested in those machines in the state that they're in because the those lathes are perfectly usable. They are going to work, and you know you could modify them so they wouldn't have to work off of a line drive because those line drives terrify me. <laughs> There's no way you could convince me to work off of one of those. I'm just waiting for one of those massive belts to, to snap and whip you upside the head. I, I'm not worried about the snapping part. I'm worried about getting something caught in them oh, and getting yeah, pulled into too. it. Yeah. yeah, that's that's my my uh, 
especially as you're engaging the belt, right? Because you've got to use a stick to sort of flip the belts over to the next uh, the next pulley. And then you go off and you try and get it all hooked up. And at some point or another, you know that's going to grab you and, and suck you in. So, yeah, I, I, uh, no thanks. I shiver just thinking about it. Yeah, exactly. So if you happen to be anywhere in Saskatchewan and you're looking for some metal lathes, now, I will warn you, these are not watch-scale lathes. Uh-huh. <laughs> By the looks of it, one of those was uh, was probably about a 20-inch or 24-inch diameter lathe uh, and probably had a six-foot bed on it. So so it's a, it, it's a sizable lathe, but, uh, you know, if you want to rebuild the Industrial Revolution, you've got the machine to do it. And across the pond, two other watchmakers we've mentioned here on the show before from Ocelon, Dominique and, and Serrano, been working on the Naissance d'une Montre 2 project. Uh, they have been resurrecting all manner of old watchmaking tools that would date from as far back or, or farther than that lathe from 1915. And the Time Aeon Foundation, which is the, the driving force behind these projects, uh, backed by the likes of, of Grubel Forzi, Philippe Dufour, Carrie Gautilin, and Vianney Halter, they've recently released a progress update on these number two watch in, in this series. And unlike the Naissance du Mont 1, uh, there will not be any other watches other than this one that it is made. Uh, the, the very first one uh, had the, the prototype, which sold for, I believe, upwards of a million Swiss francs. Wow. And uh, then they did a series of seven after that to gather some, some more funds towards perpetuating the the skill and, and the craft uh, of traditional watchmaking and so that these these handicrafts and these skills don't disappear because uh, there's a lot of know-how that as we've mentioned here on the show before when a, a watchmaker dies every time one passes away there is you know literally be books written about the the knowledge that that they have earned over their lifetime uh, applying this trade this is a group that I really wish would embrace video editing and video publishing a little bit more. I know they tried putting out videos for the first one a little bit, and I don't know if it's because they weren't getting enough uptake on it, like if people just weren't going to their website and watching them or what it was, but they their updates really dried up quickly. And I, I wish that they would put up more videos and not just sort of the lightweight marketing type videos that you often see from these, you know, these kinds of things. I would love to see, you know, a a regular in-depth series saying, okay, here's 15 minutes and we are going to talk about how we do this. Here's, you know, half an hour and we're going to talk about, you know, how we designed X. And it would be, it'd be lovely to see that because as commendable as it is what they're doing and trying to share that information at the same time, they're currently sharing that information with two people. And, you know, that's that's great. That's two more young people in the world who now have some of that information. But it's still only two more people. That that doesn't really scale well, right? And, you know, you can't, uh, you and I are not going to get an invite over to uh, to Dufour's workshop to, to learn finishing techniques, right? Whereas if if they could get a good video crew in there, and these days, with the quality of small cameras, you certainly don't need a lot of camera gear inside of a, a workshop to film it effectively. You know, get in there, film it, get it out there to the world. It can live on YouTube forever or wherever you want to put it. Heck, put it up for sale. People would, would gladly pay for it. I know I certainly would. I know the Christian Lass, who we've spoken about before on the show, uh, he's actually got a series of 
courses that he's put up online. I think one of them is, it's the equivalent of that basic mechanical watch course at the BHI that we've spoken about a number of times, the 6497, which is the equivalent of that Horological Society of New York course. Uh, but he also has a, a more advanced course that he's got up there on, uh, I think he talks about turning a balance staff or something like that. So there are certainly people out there doing it. He's charging for it, which is fine. I, you know, I have no problems with people making money off of their knowledge and distributing it. It allows them to continue doing that and, and putting it out there. There are enough watchmakers in the world and just people who are curious, frankly, who would be certainly more than happy to, to pay for that and to watch it. So that, you know, I'd love to see that sort of thing happen. Of course, it's a little challenging. It, it's daunting at first trying to add video to your workflow. Certainly slows things down. I know that from, from us. You know, I've, I filmed this uh, welding table setup that, uh, that I just built for the, the studio. And, you know, everything you do takes three or four times longer because you've got to think about, okay, where's the camera set up? How is this working? You know, and then you've got to edit it afterwards. Now, that's just me filming Rich and me here in the studio. If you have a dedicated crew that's that's handling that, then it, it works a little bit better. So hopefully we'll see that happen either with these guys or somebody else sometime in the near future uh, it, because there's certainly a, a need for that sort of information to get out there in the world. And, and video right now is just the best way of doing it and scaling it to the number of people that need it. I think having a dedicated crew is, is the key yeah. there. And uh, that certainly would come with its fair share of uh, expenses as well, trying to, to have oh, a crew sure. in there filming. And uh, particularly when you think of the the duration of time over which these these projects are taking, mm-hmm. that's a lot of staff to pay for a lot of time to, to capture this video and, and to turn it into something. But I, I agree 100%. I would love to have more video content, to have had more video content. Mm-hmm. We've certainly hinted at it quite a bit over the years. Uh, and to to your point as well uh, about it adding time to the process, I, I mean, that first watch that Michel Boulanger made, it took them seven years to finish that yeah. project. So to, to think about how much longer that, that may have taken with video, well, if they had a crew, maybe not much longer. Well, but yeah. if they're trying to do it all on their own, maybe have different takes, different angles, uh, I, I don't want to think about how much longer that project would have taken them. <laughs> I, I think that that sort of thing, if you've got another crew in there helping out, then that, that wouldn't add dramatically more time. And the nice thing is that you don't have to have a crew in there all the time. And you certainly don't need to keep them on payroll constantly, right? You can hire people to come in and shoot video and do it in a week or two week block, right? And, and do that every couple of months. Uh, but at the same time, there are people who are doing this effectively themselves. You, know, you look at somebody like Chris at ClickSpring, uh, the, mm-hmm. the YouTube channel, he built one of the John Wilding wa- uh, clocks originally and uh, documented it and recently has been uh, doing the uh, Antikythera mechanism and recreating that. You know, he is, he is doing that entire thing in a room that is probably a third of the size of the room that we're currently recording in by himself and puts out some amazing, amazing content. You, you know, so there's there's certainly a way to do it. Now, obviously... He's, you know, he's figured out the video thing and he's figured out the editing and he does, does a great job of it. You know, they're working in larger shops. They've got more resources. And this could be a way, again, of, of raising even more funds because mm-hmm. if you are charging for some of it later, you know, there there is certainly demand for it. I would, uh, I'd be happy to pay them large sums of money for access to some of that video. Yeah, as would I, I would absolutely yeah. pay for it. And that there have been things in the past in this sort of vein, videos about uh, Dufour and the like that, that I have paid for, and uh, mm. they happen to be released later for free just because I guess the market's not that huge for, the, for that yeah. sort of content. And uh, I am in no way 
slighted that I paid for something and it's now available for free. I'm Absolutely. happy to have paid for that that content. I'm glad and grateful to the people who took the time to produce that content and put it out there in the world because there are so many little nuggets in there of these watchmakers who may not be with us in 10 years. Yeah, right? Guys like before, I don't know how much longer they'll be around. Sure. You know, Daniel's passed away sooner than I, I thought he would. Yeah. And I'd love for there have, to have been more videos produced in his workshop than mm-hmm. there were over his lifetime. And I, again, I'm grateful for the content that was produced, uh, but there could have been so much more. Yeah, there's so many, so many people that are out there that I know of. Uh, Martin Matthews, who's an engine turner and a watch case maker. He, when he passed away, there was nobody who he had taught really other than some bits and pieces. Um, you know, there, nobody who had really been an apprentice of his to pass along. There was an engine turner and enamelist in Texas uh, by the name of Robert Whiteside, who was unfortunately murdered a number of years ago. And uh, I, I was I was in the process of trying to figure out how to go down and take some courses with him. And uh, he ended up um, he ended up getting murdered. And it was, you know, it's so tragic. Obviously, anybody dying like that is is horrible. But this is a man who had an incredible amount of knowledge and skill. And again, all of that lost. There's very little information. I'm fortunate that I know people who knew him well. And I've been able to get email conversations that he had with other people talking about some of the technical sides of what they were doing. I've got photos of some of his work in progress that I wouldn't have otherwise. But, you know, again, here's a person who he, you know, he did pass on some of his information to a few people, but nowhere near as many as he could have. And it's it's really unfortunate that, that we don't have that. As you say, George Daniels, he passed away probably earlier than, than we, you know, we would have hoped he could. You know, Dufour, he's in his 70s now. He's not going to live forever at some point or another. You know, he... We need to get that information out of out of people like that so that it, it doesn't die. Mm-hmm. And I am grateful for the the correspondence I've, I've been able to have with Dufour and Votilainen and the like. And and I have to agree with what you're saying there. It, it is a, a shame in a sense that there are these micro interactions happening or smaller transactions of knowledge and know how being passed on when there there could be much grander things or just publishing it to a much wider audience in a way. Mm that thanks to the internet simply wasn't possible 30 years ago. The way that information can be disseminated today at literally the click of a button, Mm. uh, you can just reach such a a wider audience and have a a far greater impact. And I do hope that the Time Man Foundation does begin to to leverage video more. And I do want to comment, too, that uh, I think it's a bit of a a disservice to say that they're only passing it on to to two (laughs) more watchmakers uh, because uh, Michel Boulanger is a, a teacher and he's gone of on course. to teach what, what he is doing. And uh, Dominique and, and Serrano are also not full-time teachers, but they do teach part-time at, at a school near them. So they are actually passing on the, this knowledge and know-how that they are accruing to another generation of watchmakers. Absolutely. And that and that makes it worthwhile. But at the same time, there there's still a limit to how mm-hmm. many people you can pass that on to, right? It's You don't scale very well when you have one person teaching two people, teaching you know, a handful of people, because as we've talked about before, it's not as if watchmaking schools are full of hundreds and hundreds of people, right? You're still talking about incredibly small class sizes, mm-hmm. you know, maybe a half a dozen people at a time. So it's going to take a while for this information to really disseminate out and get get spread out to a large number of people. So uh, that we need we need better ways of, of doing that. And it's funny because I, I've been slowly collecting a lot of uh, books that were written anywhere from like 100 to 150 years ago, they're sort of vanity press 
books that various artists were putting out at different times. Uh, the one that I just recently picked up, I don't remember the uh, the author's name, but it was a book on enameling. And it was everything that he had learned as an analyst in his career. And it's not, you know, it's not a big book. It's a, it's a little, you know, a little thing. It's almost a notebook and it's maybe 100, 150 pages long, but it has all of the information that he learned as an enamelist, right? I've picked up a couple of different books like that on, on watchmaking where, you know, that a lot of that data, a lot of that information now is out of date. You know, they obviously don't talk about somebody writing in the 1890s isn't talking about modern escapements and, and modern watchmaking techniques. But every once in a while, there are bits and pieces of information in there that you just can't get elsewhere. And that's still relevant today. And it's funny because there seems to be a lot less of that today than there was, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago. Uh, it seems as though there, it, in some ways it was easier to, to put together a 200-page manuscript and have it published than today, even though we've got the internet. But it seems as though not as many people are, who are in that position are using it like that. And trying to publish onto dead trees is extremely expensive. Um, we've spoken, I think, a couple of times about about Stefan Paolo and his book on tourbillon uh, manufacturing and also case making. You know, it's a great book and it's it's fascinating. There's an incredible amount of information in it, but they're not cheap books. I mean, he I don't know that he's made back the money that he put into publishing that book. He obviously published it because he felt very strongly about putting out that information but I'm not sure that he ever made his money back on that book. And that's some, that's the sort of thing where today it's, it's challenging to do. And, you know, obviously there are still costs associated with doing something like YouTube or even a blog or whatever. So it's none of it's free to do. And, uh, it's, it's a challenge for anybody to do, but I really, I really wish that more people would do it. And then on top of that, a lot of the people who are, you know, who are newer into the industry, who are younger, a lot of them don't feel they should be publishing the, what they know because they don't feel that they're a master of the art that they're doing. But that's a horrible reason not to put out what you know because you never know what you have learned that somebody else doesn't know, even someone who's been doing this for much longer than than uh, you know than you have. Uh, I know when when Eddie first convinced me to to speak at the Santa Fe Symposium, you know he's like, look. You're, there are other people out there who probably know more about this than you, but I don't know them, and I don't know where they are, and you should talk about this. Because even though you don't feel like you've mastered this, you know more about this than I do. You know more about this than the other people that are you know, going to be sitting in front of you at the Santa Fe Symposium. So you know, get over yourself and talk about it, write about it. And that's, that's incredibly important to do, even if you don't think you know very much about it write it down, document it, put out a YouTube video, whatever you, you feel comfortable doing, because uh, there's no, you know, there's no wrong time to start, you know, to start publishing what you know about whatever it is that you do. Yeah, the, I think the the ideal is almost to have a, a master and uh, a beginner synergize together to, yeah. to deliver inter- information. Because the, the reality is, someone who has mastered their craft becomes oblivious to what they know, mm. in a sense. There are, are little things, uh, subtle actions that they, they don't even realize they're doing or that things mm-hmm. that they don't know that others don't know mm-hmm. or like don't even realize that they know and are consciously doing anymore. It's just so ingrained in, in what they do. I mean, they're doing these, these same actions all the time. And, you know, neurons that fire together, wire together. And it's just these really strong 
pathways and it almost gets built in, into their, their subconscious in, in the way that they're, they're operating. And uh, there's this old adage that, uh, well, I don't know if it's an old adage. It's an adage I heard when I was young. So to me, it's an old adage <laughs> uh, that if you want to learn how to do something, ask a beginner. Yeah. Uh, because a, a beginner is going to be able to, to relay the, the ins and outs and the little stumbling blocks that you as a beginner are going to hit early on. Whereas a master is going to have forgotten those mm. sort of stumbling blocks and, and pitfalls that you encounter as someone just starting out. So yeah, absolutely. If, I, I think there is value in any craft uh, of both masters and novices to publish what they know. Now there's a danger that can come about in uh, sort of misinformation or, or going the wrong way, which is why I think that, that there's that ideal in, in having that synergy of a master and a beginner delivering content. Because I've certainly seen a lot of, of bad information about watch watch repair and watch servicing out there that I really wish wasn't out there. For sure. But at the same time, it, you're allowed to have a conversation about it then, mm-hmm. right? You can You can say, oh, look, there is a better way of doing this. There have been a few times on YouTube. There was one in particular that I, I, Paul sent me this video, and the things that this guy was doing with his drill press, trying to make a pen, was so unbelievably dangerous. And Paul and myself and a number of other people, fortunately, within an hour or two, of this thing going live, were like, "Look, you need to take this video down because what you are doing is incredibly dangerous." And fortunately, he did because what he was doing was he was eventually going to rip a thumb off in the drill press. Like it was just so dangerous what he was doing, you know. And and I understand that there's always a danger of people publishing incorrect information or bad information, but that's not, of course, not limited to to uh, amateurs either or or newbies, right? I've talked to masters who don't necessarily understand some part of what they're doing, and they publish bad information about it. With a lot of the modern publishing techniques, whether it's YouTube or a blog or whatever, there's at least the ability to have a conversation with the community and be able to have a back and forth and say, hey, listen, you know, have you considered, I know that's working for you, but have you considered doing it this way? That's actually going to be a better way of doing whatever it is that you're doing. Or you can publish your own video and say, listen, I've seen a bunch of videos out there showing somebody cleaning a watch like this, and there is a better way of doing it. And so that's that's the nice thing that when you start sharing that information, you know, you have that, you open that conversation up and hopefully you encourage other people who do know more about it to start talking about it as well. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why I want to publish YouTube videos. I see some of the stuff that's out there. I watch a lot of YouTube videos now. In fact, I basically don't watch any broadcast television anymore. It's almost entirely YouTube videos that people are making in their basement or their shop. And sometimes I see stuff and I'm like, wow, there is a much better way of doing that or there is a safer way of doing that. That's one of the things that's encouraged me to, to start producing what I'm, what I'm producing. So I, I think that even a beginner should, should feel comfortable to do that. And obviously we need to be, you know, we need to be better human beings when it comes to how we talk about things because, you know, some of the comment sections on YouTube can be a burning dumpster. It's, uh, some people are just really horrible people. But at the same time, you know, you can still have a, a sensible conversation with people about stuff. Uh, you know, we've talked about Dean DK down in Sydney. Fortunately, he hasn't been posting much at all uh, during the, the coronavirus uh, lockdown. Hopefully, he and his family are doing okay because he, he, I haven't seen anything from him on social media at all over the last couple of months. 
but he's you know he is a true beginner and he's i definitely have a huge amount of respect for the fact that he is posting everything that he's doing including his faults he uh, oversized a hole for one of his jewels and you know he had to i think he had to do it like three or four times and he posted all about it all the t- every time that he did it and he's like i don't understand why this is not working properly and people helped him out and and had that conversation with him about oh this is what you're you know maybe doing wrong or this is how you can improve it you know and and everybody's learning from it right people who don't know anything about how to use a reamer in a hole if they were following along and they followed what he talked about in a later video he again came back and said look i did a bunch of research i talked to some people and I've now been able to ream this hole properly so that it gets me the dimension that I want to. Those are the sorts of things that you can learn from from somebody in that situation. That if he, you know, he's a beginner, if he felt that he didn't, you know, he shouldn't be publishing videos about it, there are a lot of people who maybe never would would hear that and would never learn how to properly ream a hole in that way. So I think there's there's definitely benefit to sharing information, and there's there's as I said, there's never a bad time to to start. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, like we've both read Adam Savage's book there, Every, Every Tool yeah. is a Hammer, and uh, he has a, a section in there about the best shop to work in is, is one where everybody is sharing like that, and whether they're brand new to the craft or, or the old master in the shop. It's just such a, a better environment. And with things like YouTube, you, you get that on a, a global scale, and it, it just, the sort of rising tide lifts all ships. Yeah, uh, it, it just makes everybody better. It gives a, a master a chance to reflect on their process, and mm-hmm. maybe even hone their own process a little bit more when they see what someone else is is doing, and they can offer a correction. And the key there is to to be kind and gentle yes. in in the way that that is presented. And I think that conversation is key. I in no way meant to dissuade <laughs> any beginners yeah. from publishing their content. And in fact, uh, for myself, I owe a debt of gratitude to to John Davis. Uh, he published his learnings early on in, in watchmaking school when, when he attended uh, the Wostep course in, mm. in Seattle. And it was through those posts that he made that I learned that there was even such a thing as a watchmaking sure. school still. And it started me down that road and, and spurred me on in, in that direction sure. to, to seek out a school that, that I could attend and, and go to and, and learn the craft. And I learned a ton too that that. Yeah. Through reading his posts, I was better prepared for school once uh, I started. Sure. And, and I know working in the studio here with Rich, both of us have been learning so much from each other. I know a lot more about certain things, about making certain things in certain ways, machining, things like that. Rich knows a lot more about woodworking than I do, and particularly about electronics. I'm always amazed when I watch him you know, wiring up our hellacious mode doorbell, for instance, you know, those are things I wouldn't even think about how, you know, manufacturing something like that. Like, I, it, it wouldn't even cross my mind to to get a timing device and set it up and do the things that he did. And so it's fascinating watching him working and doing those things. He designs in a completely different way than I do, right? His design process is entirely different than me. We were going around the shop the other day trying to find a place to put our lumber storage. And both of us had entirely different ideas. You know, when I would hear him talk about something, I'm like, oh, I hadn't even thought about that. Right? Like, that's not, I hadn't thought about the storage requirements in that way. But he was thinking about it in one way because he was thinking about, you know, for instance, when you have offcuts of plywood that you don't need to use the entire sheet. And I'm like, well, I hadn't even thought about dealing with those offcuts. I haven't done enough furniture work with plywood to end up with a bunch of offcuts. I'm normally taking a full sheet and doing something with the full sheet and then it's done. 
he's doing enough work and smaller work and and ending up with these these bits and pieces of plywood they're not a full sheet because i'm sitting there thinking wow well you know you're just going to get a pile of plywood just drive it in with a forklift dump it there and away we go right and and it's you know i i wasn't thinking at all about this requirement of what do you do with the parts that you want to keep that that aren't large enough so you know we we're able to bounce ideas off of each other and have a better understanding of what we're thinking and doing just because we get to have that conversation now we're fortunate we get to have it in real time in person every day which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly anybody that's out there, if you can find somebody, find your rich, find somebody who you can, you know, you can tolerate in a shop and who can tolerate you. That's probably the most important thing. I don't know how rich tolerates me in the shop, but anyways, I'm very thankful that he does. And, you know, and find somebody that you can collaborate with like that. They don't need to be doing the same things that you do, but having having that collaborator is incredibly important. And it makes a big difference when it comes to your own learning and figuring out what you're doing. And actually, as you were saying that, I realized like that just in like a very real example of this sharing of information causing good positive change in outcomes and sort of again rising the tide for for all all ships is uh, when I read every tool's a hammer. There were nuggets here and there. Kind of wished it was a little bit shorter. I, I could have done with a more distilled version. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I apologize, Mr. Savage. I'm sure you had some quota from your, your publisher as to how many words you had to crank out. Uh, but one of the, the things that uh, the, the bigger takeaways, I don't even know if it's that, is was it the way he was storing his tape. And uh, <laughs> like I hate the way that I have my tape currently stored at yeah. home. And I was inspired by that. But then I see that Rich has taken that and was also inspired by Adam's set up for, for his tape and he's taking it to another level yeah. and I uh, actually appreciate and admire even more what Rich has done and yeah. the way that he's storing his tape and I'm actually going to skip right over Adam Savage's <laughs> tape storing method and, and jump right to, to the Lowen approach uh, of tape storage. Yeah, that's just it. That, itera- that iteration that you get through collaboration like that, whether it's intentional or not, obviously Adam Savage wasn't intentionally collaborating with Rich, but it happened because of Adam publishing that that information. And as, you know, as much as people revere Adam in the maker world, he is still a, you know, he's still a newbie in a lot of these things, right? You watch him when he's machining things and you're thinking there is no experienced machinist who would ever do what he's doing the way that he's doing it. But that doesn't matter. He's he's still out there. He's still sharing what he's doing. And there are other people who will learn. There are other people who will be interested in what he's doing and then will learn better ways of doing it because they initially got inspired because of him. So it's uh it is important to have that that conversation and to and to have that collaboration and as you say you end up with a better a better tape dispenser at that point and uh certainly i wouldn't have come to the tape dispenser that rich has right now uh, it's so unbelievably simple but it's it makes sense right it works and um and it comes from partially from adam's first order ref- retrieval theory that he has of tools where everything should be easily uh, you know, easily accessed with, you know, you shouldn't have to dig through toolboxes to get something or more bins or whatever, which I suffer from a lot. My bench is a complete disaster. I definitely need new, new uh, storage. So, you know, those are the sorts of things that you, that you get from those collaborations and, and uh, you don't get them any other way. Yeah. I'm not sure there is ever an end to organizing a, a shop. I think our, our needs constantly evolve and, and we also, constantly find better ways to to organize things and, mm-hmm. and go about things so i uh look forward to this path ahead of me and getting my spaces more organized and i look forward to, to seeing how things become more and more organized here 
And uh, I hope we can continue to, to learn from each other and, and the rest of the world uh, as we all journey through this process together. As, as I've been learning, John, it's not actually organization that's never-ending. It's bench-making and table-making that's never-ending. I, I thought, I was hoping that by this point, we're, we're coming up, it's nearly July 1st, it's nearly Canada Day here, 2020. We've been in this studio now since the middle of November, and we still need to make more tables. <laughs> it seems to be never-ending. You will eventually run out of space for tables. I, well, you know, there's what eighty three hundred square feet in this in this studio. <laughs> Maybe after we've we've made eighty three hundred square feet worth of tabletops, that may be the end. Throw one hell of a banquet. <laughs> That's right. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand. <laughs>